You are listening to an episode of the Technology Consulting Series on Design Talk. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm Trisha Ghosh. And I am Shaptarshi Mitra. And we are very pleased to welcome David Bowman, Chief Technology Officer at Fair. First, David, could you please tell us, tell us a little about yourself and your current role? Yeah. Um, so, I, as you say, I'm Chief Technology Officer with Fair. Uh, Invoice Fair is a small fintech um, based in UCD Nexus. Um, the company's been around for about seven years. I'm only recently with them. I joined them last August. Um, prior to that, I was with a reinsurance company for a number of years. Um, and I've been in the industry about 30 years. So you're not supposed to look quite so surprised. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so over that time, I've been in gaming companies. I've been in security and encryption companies, um, telecoms companies, um, I often describe myself as more of a technology journeyman. I, I tend to follow technologies and um, things that catch my interest tend to be the companies I'm attracted to. So I've, I've been lucky enough to have a fairly wide range of experience. That's amazing. So uh, David, let's start with the hard, hard question first. Uh, what for you is the essence of design? Yeah, yeah, thanks for the hardball. Um, design for me, it's, it's, it's an expression. It's an expression of an idea. Um, and I think that's quite important. And I think that goes across irrespective of what's been designed. I think whether it's building design, whether it's clothing design, software design, all of these things are, are an expression of some kind of idea. Um, the idea obviously has an element of functionality to it, but I think um, there's an elegance to design that, that's particularly noticeable and it's got a, a certain craft to it that's um, quite apparent when you're looking at a good design. Of course, there's bad designs as well. But fundamentally for me, design is about communication. Um, it's about conveying an idea. Um, it should be engaging. The more ways it can engage, so intellectually it should be able to engage you, but also if it can emotionally engage with you as well, you're going to get more drawn in with it and, and more likely to, to participate with it. It's not necessarily obvious for people to see how that falls into a technology. Uh, space, but if you if you look at large system architectures where there is a, a coherence to the design and there's an elegance, there's an absolute elegance to it there, um, you know where you can actually see the patterns through the complexity. Um, that for me would be where design fits in. Okay, so moving on then, our audience are really interested in digital consulting and technology. So is there a place for consultants in startups? Yes. Is the short answer. I could leave it there, um, but I guess we'll talk some more. So I actually think that everybody um, at a certain level have to engage in some kind of consultancy. So whether they're professional consultants brought in from an external organization or an internal consultant where um, the skills of consultancy need to be brought to bear. Um, particularly in startups, it's quite important because typically it's, well, being a startup, it's, it's tends to be quite innovative, it's quite new, which means that they're, they're exploring a new problem space or they're exploring a, a new approach to an existing problem space. Um, so that means that there's a lot of unknowns. And to actually get at the heart of, of what is trying to be achieved and what's going to work in a market, um, I think it's important that those consultancy skills are there. A lot of startups won't necessarily have the money to engage with sort of a big five consultancy firm. Um, but increasingly what's happening in the Irish market is there are, there's a lot of 
financial support available and grant aid available um, to allow consultants to come in. So whether it be, you know, big data consultants, um, for example, where people are trying to, to build on their analytics capabilities or machine learning consultancy or AI consultancy, any of those things that are feeding back into research areas can actually be quite well supported. So the, the financial factor of consultancy is probably less of an issue uh, than historically it would have been. Um, typically what consultants can bring though is a range of experience that isn't necessarily immediately available within a startup organization. Um, and I think that can be a real benefit. Uh, startups, they, they tend to, to gather behind a particular vision of, of what they're trying to achieve. Um, and that can be disruptive, but it can also lead to a sort of a, a narrow tunnel vision where it's like, well, this is exactly the way it can go. Bringing a, a consultant in with, with a lot of experience of a wider range of things can give different perspectives on things. So I think it can be quite, um, it can be quite beneficial. So I have one more question from the previous question, actually. So the first question would be from the part that you answered. Are the consultants needed at the beginning of a startup or in between? That's the first question. And uh, also the second question, which states that if you were to start from scratch, what would that team look like that would actually, what, what would your ideal team look like? Okay. I'll unpack a few things there. Um, the answer, I, I would say, for the first question, whether they're needed from the outset, I think it very much depends on the nature of, of where you're going. You know, so um, the, the story that I've always uh, found particularly interesting from a startup perspective is the story of Dropbox. Um, people talk a lot about you know, proof of concepts and minimal viable products and things like that to prove a market. Um, and typically, angel investors and, and early investors, um, and indeed, research grants and those kind of things from government bodies are looking for you to prove your market. So how do you prove your market? Um, typically that's done with an MVP of some sort. Dropbox did a very interesting thing on their MVP in that the initial MVP was actually a video. That was it. There was no product. They did a video showing how the concept would work and they got first round funding on that basis. It's quite a famous story. Um, brilliant piece of insight. No software development done. They were trying to convey an idea that they couldn't actually get across, and he finally got, got to this idea. Um, and I think that's a fantastic way to go. From there, you sold the idea, you've got the money. Now you've got to get the job done. That's a really good time to bring in some consultants and, and get the work going. I think where, where it's particularly innovative, um, it can be a bit challenging. It, it depends on, on the specific area that people are looking for. Uh, in some cases, consultant some of the larger consultants can come in and they're learning as much as they are. It's almost a, a co-research rather than um, necessarily contributing to it. Um, so I think it varies, but I, I do think there's value in, in at least having some, excuse me, some insights, um, maybe at different levels. So it may not necessarily be immediately at a, at a technology level. It may be at a leadership level in terms of structuring an organization, which leads nicely onto your second question, which is, uh, you know, what kind of structure should there be? Yeah, like the, uh, what should be your ideal team? Like when you, from the scratch and then it starts. One that works is always a good start. <laughs> um, it, it, it varies. I guess it depends on, on what kind of company you're trying to build. Um, funny where we are now uh, in Invoice Fair, we're, we're at the process of establishing a, a completely new team because we're, we're moving, we're building a completely new platform. Um, 
and it's a blend. It, it, some of it, it depends on the skills of the people that you can actually pull in and the kind of product that you're trying to build. Um, but it's, it wouldn't be sufficient just to have, you know, two or three engineers sitting in a corner plowing away at something because no product ever gets built that way, despite what anyone thinks. So a combination, you need, you need somebody who is going to run a process. You know, whether it be an agile process, a traditional project management process, but somebody fulfilling that role of keeping things on track. Um, you need somebody who's engaging with the business. Um, and you obviously need people who are doing the work. Um, that, that can be an interesting blend. You need somebody um, who has a fair degree of experience in, in design, in structure. Um, depending on the nature of the product that you're building, that person, if you're, if you're doing a business to consumer, Type product or, or a customer-facing product directly, a really strong UI person. It doesn't necessarily have to be somebody full, um, full time, but engagement with somebody who is doing that visual aspect of it is really important. Um, time and again, we've seen, uh, and that's been clearly demonstrated, that applications that have a strong UI will will do exactly what you want to do. It'll hook people, and they'll want to use the product. And people are very forgiving of pretty applications. <laughs> there can be a lot of bad things going on, but so long as something looks good as an engaging, mm -hmm. you know, you'll get them and you'll get your early adopters, which is, is quite important. So it has to be a blend. I think the, the, it, the important ones are some of those coordination roles, and, and they're the people who will also coordinate with whoever's de developing the requirements. So it needs to be a bit of a blend from that respect. Yeah, and one question that I had, like, if I am ever to open a startup, so would the technology part of the startup would outnumber the consultants? And where do you think the consultants in the hierarchy should be? So it's, it's an interesting question. Where I am right now, um, I have, it's changing quite quickly. I have three full-time people and I think it's, well, as of next week, it'll be 11 consultants. So I think the world has changed in this regard. Um, and part of it is, is as a result of, of tax legislation, quite apart from anything else. COVID drove a lot of people into remote working. A lot of people wanted to go home. So interestingly, in my last company, we had a number of people who were from Spain and Croatia, a couple of places like that, who wanted to go home and be with their families in lockdown. But because of tax legislation, they had to go remote. So they effectively became contractors. Um, from my perspective, they were still the same people and they were still doing the same job, just the nature of the contractual relationship had changed. And I think that's an important way to think about things. You can't, if you, if you create a scenario of them and us from the outset, it's very hard to then build a team culture that is inclusive. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're biasing your thinking, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to come back from that. So I, I think you first have to focus on building an integrated team mm. and then particularly in the current market, wherever you can put that together and however you can put that together, whether it be consultants, whether it be full-time staff, whether it be in-house, whether it be remote. I mean, I have people now ranging from Georgia, Slovenia, Serbia, Spain, and Ireland, even Sligo, apparently. Oh. So all the remotest corners of the world. <laughs> so moving on, so what are your views on the agile practice? It is more of fashion or reality? I have many views on Agile. Um, I think, it, again, it's a question of perspective. I think the business has a very different idea of what Agile means to what 
software and technology people think agile is. Um, I mean, if I suspect if you did a survey of the business on what they think agile is promising them, um, they think it's going to be quicker, they think it's going to be cheaper, and they think it's going to be more transparent. Um, and actually, none of those things are true at all. Um, if you if you absolutely look at any agile project, mm -hmm. it's more expensive than yeah. a traditional project mm -hmm. because there's no defined end to it. As long as the business has additional requirements, mm -hmm. the agile process says we keep going. So at some point, somebody has to call halt. Um, and then the question emerges of, well, has it actually achieved its goal? Has it delivered everything that the business thought it was going to deliver? It will certainly have delivered constantly the highest priorities because that's what the process is supposed to do. But those priorities obviously shift, so you may find that you're only 80% through from a business perspective what you thought you were going to get. So are you actually completely satisfied? The, the thing I think that gets lost with agile processes is where the fundamentals of it is. I don't think it's ever explained to the business properly. Um, agile is, is a methodology for dealing with projects when you don't know what you want. And that's where the iterations come from. That's where the, the cycles come cycles, from. Sprints and everything. If you go and say to the business, we're going to run a process because you don't know what you want, there's mm -hmm. immediately going to be barriers there. And they say, well, of course we know what we want. And that's the, that's the problem that we've got. And say, well, okay, if you know exactly what you want, let's just write everything down. We'll scope it and price it on that basis. But if they can do that, you know, you're into a fully waterfall process, which may be suitable for some things. Um, but most businesses don't want to engage at that level. If you also say to the business from an agile perspective, well, okay, we need deep involvement from you. This isn't just a process that is for the technology team. This is a process for the entire organization. There never seems to be a terribly clear understanding that that level of engagement is required. Um, so I think agile is important. I think it fits uh, for a lot of projects that we're doing. I think a lot of that uh, relates to the fact that it's very difficult to get the business to fully define what they want because they're not technology people. So they're not supposed to know what they want. This is where that consultative relationship has to come in. That's where that engagement has to come in. For us to get from the business what they're trying to do, present them with something, and then iterate over that. Um, but I do think that has to be bounded in a certain way. So um, Agile works for that, but that's not the process that you want for every uh, project that you could undertake. So. I wouldn't like an aircraft control system, for example, to be done in an agile way. Yeah. It seems like the failure right there is probably a bit <laughs> of a high cost. Um, equally, vehicle control systems. There's a lot of systems where you don't want to develop them in an agile way. Um, but for many of the software projects that I guess most of us will encounter over time, I think if the, the parameters of the process are clear, it's a good way to go. One uh, question that I have since we were discussing about Agile and the startups. So do you think a combination of waterfall and Agile in the startups could be a good way to start something because we don't have an established product? We don't know what to deliver. So delivering things and then working on that, do you think that's a good way of putting things? Feels like you've been reading my blog. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In fact, you, you, I, would, I would maintain, it's funny, Alan and I had long conversations about this. I would maintain that you have to have a hybrid process. Yeah. You know, there, there are aspects of, of a traditional waterfall process that are actually very good upfront for scoping. Um, there are aspects of design thinking, for example, that are very good in that stage as well for rapid prototyping and really starting to, to elicit the ideas. Um, 
I think there are aspects of Kanban and Lean, for example, that are very good for bringing transparency and visibility as to what's going on. Um, and I think there's aspects of Scrum that are that are quite useful as well. So I think the the challenge that we've got is that it can't be a rigid process. You can't have a process that suits a startup with, say, five people sitting in a room and then suddenly scale to 20 people and hope the same process works. And, and that's where um, I think an awareness has to be there, that actually it has to be an evolving process to constantly fit what stage you are in the evolution of the organization yeah. and also what stage you are in the evolution of the team. Um, but I think to, to your point, yeah, there's a, there's a certain amount um, of the MVP style Mm -hmm. where you are rapidly iterating. But I think there's a point where that stopped being useful. Mm -hmm. and, and again, one of the things that we have to be clear about is your MVP is throwaway. It's there to prove and to understand and to elaborate on the ideas. Then you need to go into a more detailed planning process where you're actually going to go to production with this. Um, I think a lot of startups take their MVP all the way to production and then try and fix it as they go. Uh, not really the point of, of MVPs, um, but it looks like you're making progress more quickly, but all you're doing is laying the foundations for a rewrite somewhere down the line. Yeah. The longer you leave that rewrite, the more painful it's going to be. So uh, just another thing, could you share some tips on fostering a learning culture in the teams? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's interesting. One of the books that I read many, many years ago now, and it was hugely influential on me, it was a book called The Fifth Discipline by a guy called Peter Senge. Um, he was one of the earliest guys to talk about learning organizations, and he was citing Xerox and companies like that who were hugely innovative, but they had embedded learning into their organization. It was, it was really in the fiber of the organizations. The more important than anything is space. You have to give people space to learn, um, and you have to accept that they easiest way for people to learn is through failure. So you've got to create a culture that allows failure to happen. That's a difficult balance because obviously everything can't be a failure. That's not learning. That's just failing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a learning organization, it, it has to be built in. Um, it has to be space. Um, one of the things that Agile, I think, gets quite wrong is they, they talk about um, if you look at the, the core of the Agile Manifesto, one of the things it talks about is a sustainable pace that the team should be able to sustain indefinitely. I, for me, that's not very real. People have to operate in cycles. They have to be up operating, but you have to give them time down as well. There has to be a point for recuperation, and that's a real opportunity for learning and, and rethinking. You can't expect people to, to be constantly operating at whatever the sustainable level is and hope they're learning as well. You have to create space for that. So people, I think, actually have to learn in cycles, not this indefinite level. The indefinite level that they can sustain that includes learning is probably half of what the business wants in terms of delivery. So I, I think a more cyclic approach that allows people downtime, and in that downtime, you create space for, for detailed learning. Um, I think there has to be a certain amount of ambition to it as well. you know, and. And, and a little bit of courage to it where, you know, as new architectures and as new technologies appear, they have to be evaluated when they're on the horizon to understand where they could become useful. Um, I, I was lucky enough to work with, with one of the major banks in their digital innovation center. Um, and one of the processes we used to run on a monthly basis, very much driven by um, 
uh, a, a company called ThoughtWorks. Uh, if you haven't come across them, you should have a look at them. So they have this technology radar. Um, so they're a big consultancy company, but they run a technology radar where they position things on, into various layers on it as to whether they're worth exploring, they're worth um, evaluating and, and doing sort of proofs of concept, they're worth adopting, or they're worth holding and, and effectively retiring. Um, so we kind of took some of that thinking, and, and we would obviously look at everything in the context of the bank, but it was a completely blue sky uh, sort of approach where we would come up with, you know, we, we'd, we'd brainstorm, here's all the things we'd be interested in looking at, you know, so 3D printing and self-driving cars. At one point, one guy managed to get a, a, a VR headset in there. Nobody quite understood how he managed to do it, but he got it. Um, and the first challenge for us was, well, can we write some sort of white paper or, or a case that says where this could be useful for a bank? You know, so one of the interesting things that emerged at, at the time, this is a couple of years back now, was 3D printing was starting to emerge. Now, there's not an obvious use case for why, why would you have 3D printing in a bank? But actually, there's a bank in the US, I forget which one it is, I think it might be Chase Manhattan, who will actually print a temporary credit card for you. They'll 3D print a temporary credit card for you in the bank. So there are cases where this could work. Um, one of the less obvious ones we looked at was self-driving cars. And it was more looking at that, not from the technology perspective, but the potential impact it could have on the bank. You know, so our, our thinking went along the lines of, well, if self-driving cars really hit, and, and it's likely they will, then why do people want to own cars? And also, more interestingly, who carries the liability? You know, if a self-driving car hits somebody on the road, is it the software manufacturer, or is it the car manufacturer, or is it you? It's not you, you're not even at, at the steering wheel. So it must be somebody else. If you're not carrying the insurance, some other company is. For a bank, that's an entire market that goes away Absolutely. suddenly. Yeah. You know, are people still going to buy cars? Or are they just going to have them on demand? So these are all the, the sort of things that we, we got to think about. Um, but there was space for that, and, and they came through that sort of radar to a point where we would narrow them down to go, okay, these are the things we need to explore. And I think every organization needs to embed that kind of thinking in. They should always have some kind of radar that says, actually, here's a couple of technologies that maybe are too close to the bleeding edge for us to really look at. But we should be aware that they're there because they might actually fundamentally change how we're doing our work. Um, and as those stabilize and, and you know, come closer to, to production level, so there's a lot of companies that tend to be on, on that horizon. And we all know that there's a huge number of them that will actually fail. But some of those will start to stabilize. Some of those will, you know, cloud, for example, emerging in 2006, would really only hit the mainstream in about 2011, 2012. So being aware of that and, and what that was going to do is, is an important part. But then you've got to give people time to get up to speed on it and to understand it. And I don't think it can be isolated. It has to be everyone. Again, it's about that culture of you can't have a them and us. Whereas I go, well, these are the guys who get to play with all the shiny new toys. At some point, everyone has to play with the shiny new toys because if they don't, they go somewhere else where they're allowed to play with the shiny new toys. Okay, so what are the, what are the some good practices for teams involved in software? Uh, they could be the daily practices or the office environment regarding policies, anything. So the office environment is an interesting one in this day and age, isn't it? Like, is that, I, I don't know that that concept exists anymore. Um, We've changed some of our practices. I mean, some of the practices that you see that are that are quite traditional in in the um, the agile world, so the daily stand up and, and planning and things like that. Um, I I think they're largely 
useful. The most important thing to do uh, for any for any team, not just any software team, but for any team, is communication. You've got to have people talking to each other. Um, and there's actually no replacement for that. There's a lot of ancillary technologies that, excuse me, that can augment that. So you can have Slack channels, you can have team channels, you can have WhatsApp channels, you can have what you like. Um, nothing replaces a, a actual conversation from a communications perspective. Um, so the, our daily meeting, uh, so we have a daily stand-up at 9.30. It's, it's interesting from a, a time horizon perspective. You know, as I say, we've got people who are up to four hours ahead of us. Fortunately, we, we haven't got anything um, other than Sligo to the west. There's nothing further <laughs> west than Sligo. So our, our time zones are, are quite narrow, which is useful. But historically, I've, I've had you know, people who are in, in the US and, and, you know, mountain time in the US, which can yeah. be up to, to five or six hours of a difference. It's important that that communication happens at the start of the day. And that means, in some cases, you're actually doing that twice. So this notion of a single daily stand-up doesn't, doesn't work really with remote work. teams. Um, you, you have to hit that early. It's, it's a synchronization point where everybody's clear on, on what they're doing for that day. Or, or just, it's, it's a general chat, but it's important, as I say, just to see everyone's faces. And as I say, what we did in other organizations was we'd have one in the morning and one in the evening to synchronize with US coming on board or whatever. Um, the planning meeting is an interesting one. Um, and my, my thinking on this shifts quite a bit uh, on, on a startlingly regular basis. Um, I think it's important for technology people to talk about the problems and their potential solutions. Um, what and, and funny, Alan and I were talking about this as well. One of the, the challenges that we have with remote is those unstructured brainstorming meetings are very difficult online. We're, we're missing, I'd say it's the only aspect um, that remote hasn't got an answer to yet. Um, those, those sort of whiteboarding sessions and so on, whether you're using Miro or, or any number of the, the technologies that are out there, Video conference calls demand your focus. So they pull your focus to somewhere, wherever the, the primary speaker is, um, which doesn't allow you to review all the other things that are going on. You know, you're, you're being pulled in directions rather than being allowed sort of the full expression of your distraction, if you like, um, of your brain. So it, brainstorming, unstructured, that's very difficult in remote. Um, and I think certainly what I'm looking at now with my team is sort of once a quarter we're going to gather somewhere and run those sessions, sort of structure everything that we've got, plan it out. It's not about detail planning. I think that's, that's always a mistake. Um, but it's enough of a high-level plan, it's enough of a high-level structure that everyone knows how all the pieces fit together. Um, and with that context established, then you can do smaller planning within smaller pockets of, of people who are specifically focused on a task. Um, my mind is changing a bit. I used to be much more of an advocate of, of a scrum-like approach when it came to um, task breakdown and planning. Um, again, I, I, what I've noticed over the years with that is um, you end up with half the people in the room sort of distracted because... You know, if you've got UI people and data people and, and then sort of uh, back-end services people or front-end services people, whatever it might be, um, there's a point where they go, well, 
this isn't my bit. Somebody's going to give me an API. So I'm just going to shut down now. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just going to ignore the conversation. So I, I, I'm more inclined now to do planning with much smaller groups if we define, as I say, that context and that architecture in a broader session where we've defined the boundaries around individual components. Then the people who are operating, if you like, behind that curtain, they can go and do their own task breakdown and their own planning to whatever level suits them. You know, how, how they're identifying tasks and, and how they're breaking down the work is largely irrelevant to me. It's relevant to them because they need to work with each other. But so long as I get the outcome, I, I don't know why I'm interested, other than my natural control freak tendencies to want to know. But uh, so, yeah, so fundamentally, a, a quarterly context-based architecture and system structuring, daily stand-up and retrospectives. As I say, the process has to continually evolve, and it has to evolve to meet the needs of whatever shape the team is in. And that is largely an evolving thing. So you have to give space to reflect on that. You have to give space for, um, for people to, to review what's working and what's not working. And then you have to be comfortable enough to go, okay, well, we're just going to stop doing that and we're going to do more of this. That, that's actually very interesting. And hopefully we're ending this uh, pandemic. So hopefully things are going to get, get better soon. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think the pandemic gave people a nice excuse not to go into the office. <laughs> I, I don't, I haven't spoken to anyone who's going back remote, I think is, is going to be with us for, for good now. You know, I just don't, I don't see it us going back to, you know, nine to five or nine to six every day into a, a city center. I mean, Dublin is bad for traffic, but you know, there's other places where, you know, it's a two hour commute into work every day. That's four hours out of people's life. I don't, I don't know that anyone's going back to that. Oh, yeah, true. Uh, so one more thing. Uh, we know fintechs are coming up, right? Yep. Yep. So, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and there are company, com companies which are established in finance and in technology separately. So what do you think should be that tech sectors could imbibe in like what the finance sector does? Or is fintech something that's going to take up the tech sector? So how's that going to be justifying each other? Like, Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because, um, interestingly, that, that bank I mentioned when I was working with them in 2015, 2016, and, and they're a well-established uh, operation in Ireland, um, their CEO at the time turned around and said, actually, we are turning ourselves into a technology company that happens to do banking. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it was an interesting perspective for... Um, it, it was, yeah, it was quite a different, I think it was recognition of the, the sort of disruptor banks that had started to appear. Um, you know, PSD2, which some of you may be aware, which drove open access to banking information, was going to fundamentally transform the nature of that business. Um, you know, whereas historically they were able to cite security concerns and, and data integrity concerns and so on to keep themselves in a very closed system. There was now this European directive that said, Forget all of that. You now need to be open, and you don't have a choice anymore. Um, and and I think we're only now starting to see just how disruptive that is. Um, so I think the, the the traditional finance sector is going to have to learn a lot, and and some of them are moving better than others. I mean, as I say, I was lucky enough to be working in in a very technology intensive uh, reinsurance company recently. Um, 
and their thinking has moved much more towards sort of more modular approaches of purchasing um, specific technology components and specific technology services rather than have to build everything themselves. Um, that's it's it's an interesting one because it allows fintechs, certain fintechs, to specialize in one particular area and get really good at that. Um, it does leave a focus for more open systems um, and more ability to integrate, um, which I think is going to be beneficial as well. Um, but I think what the fintechs miss is, um, not all of them, it's not fair, it depends on how well balanced the fintech itself is. As I say, Invoiceware, we're lucky enough um, that, that we have a lot of the business side, a lot of you know very smart people working, thinking about innovative financial products mm -hmm. that they then look at us to go and implement on the technology side. And equally, we're looking for the technology side with some of the innovations we can make and bring in that. So it's, it's quite a collaborative environment from that respect. Um, if you've got a fin, excuse me, who's too heavily focused on the technology side, again, you can get that tunnel vision that says, well, we've got this grand idea about how the industry is going to be disrupted. And you may end up producing a product that actually the traditional banks or, or the traditional fin financial institutions go, that's actually a bit too innovative for us. We're not going to touch it. Um, so so there's, a, there's an engagement that has to happen there. Um, I think understanding as well, a, a lot of particularly technology startups generally miss this. Um, at the end of the day, somebody's looking for a return on an investment. You know, everybody dreams and hopes to be the next unicorn. There's a whole road to getting to be a unicorn <laughs> that requires paying salaries and, you know, making sure that you're making steady progress. Um, and I think some of the discipline that the financial institutions bring in terms of properly looking at an investment from a, a return and, and sort of timelines and, and a little more of that sort of prudent spending and, and prudent views on, on how things are being done. Um, I was reading an article just earlier today where a lot of early startups are now being pushed to, to shed some of the staff that they've hired because the investors are going, okay, you know, you're blowing however many hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions a month, and we're not getting any closer. Um, and I think Uber is an interesting case in point where a lot of people are looking at that and going, this actually may never make money, even though there's billions invested in it. Um, so I, I, I think there's going to be a bit of a correction there. I think um, we, we definitely want to move away from the rigidity that is, is traditional in, in the more uh, longer-standing financial institutions, but it doesn't mean we need to swing all the way over um, to just complete anarchy either. I think there's a there's a balance to be struck there. So, any such one good practice that finance sectors does and technology can incorporate into them? I think uh, I mean one of the things that 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 struck me as very interesting, um, more on on the reinsurance side, um, was the way of evaluating risk. And this actually comes through in, in invoice fare as well. I mean, at the end of the day, we're presenting a marketplace where we allow um, enterprises to sell their receivables, invoices and the like, as an asset. Um, so our job is to build a system where we can very quickly evaluate the risk. And the financial industry has been evaluating risk for centuries. You know, and you can't ignore that experience at the end of the day. Um, the underwriters in, in the insurance industry and the reinsurance industry um, have a very particular view and, and a very particular sense 
on how to evaluate risk. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that in terms of the software development process generally. Um, because we're appalling at it. We're just shockingly bad at, you know, oh, it'll be done in three months and we'll, you know, we'll make millions. There's, there's a, there's a mental process that they go through that, that I think could be really useful for us to evaluate. And trying to encapsulate that, I think, um, is going to be quite interesting if, if you can bottle that up into, um, whether it be ML or AI and start to apply it when evaluating actually how your software project is going. Um, there, there could be something very interesting to, to learn from there. But the overall perspective on risk, uh, on the risk would yeah. be one that I would be looking yeah. at. Uh, okay. So finally, after two years of remote, how do you see the work evolving in the next two years? Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. I think there's a number of technologies coming on board that may improve some of the things we've talked about. Um, I think everything is going to stay remote. I, I actually, I think the, what a lot of people, um, certainly the people that I've spoken to have recognized is the amount of time wasted moving yourself from one location to another is, is a huge drain, both, both, you know, from a stress perspective and also from a productivity perspective. Um, unfortunately, it's not all, you know, this utopian view of we'll all just work at home. Um, there's a lot that's missed out of people not being together. Um, the, the, um, the sort of ad hoc impromptu conversation that would traditionally happen in an office, you know, somebody walking past a desk and just agreeing to go and grab coffee or whatever it might be, that's all gone. Um, every conversation is very much a work conversation. And that's had, I, I don't think we've seen the full impact of that from a culture perspective yet. Um, it's quite difficult to build a team culture across a Zoom call. Um, you know, so, that, as I say, that, that, that the impromptu uh, conversation is the thing that really helps establish a culture and establish relationships amongst people. And some focus has to be given on, on how we get that back. Because, as I say, the reality is, I would say a large portion of people are going to try and do at most three days a week in the office and, and try and find two days where they're just not doing that. Um, it's going to be interesting to see where the pressure on that starts to come because there's a lot of real estate mm -hmm. around the world that's built to house a lot of people that potentially could be very vacant. And also the four-day work culture is coming into practice. Yeah, that's an interesting one because, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that presumes that people have limited themselves to five days of work, and, and that's certainly not the case necessarily in startups. So I, I think there's, our thinking needs to, to much, you know, our thinking constantly evolves. You know, I mean, when Ford was building factories and, and they were starting to build production lines, you know, there was this, yeah. you know, very, was it the Keynesian model where it's like, okay, just stick people there and just have them constantly repeat. And then the Toyota model came along and said, well, actually, no, if you give people a bit more freedom, you end up with more productivity and more innovation. And then Agile came along. So there's this constant evolution. I think this is the next stage in that. Um, I do, there's, there's a huge amount that has to happen for remote to be fully embraced. And I think there's a lot of, there's still a lot of resistance to it. You know, it, it certainly, I think a huge awareness and, and a very dramatic learning has happened as a result of everyone suddenly having to go remote and it was enforced. Um, but 
I'm, I'm not entirely convinced we've learned all the lessons yet. I, I think I think people have recognized that yes, it's, it can be as productive. There are those culture aspects that are missing, but I, I would anticipate this year particularly, we're going to see a lot of pressure from organizations to try and get people back in. Um, if I were a gambling man, which I'm actually not, I just work for gambling companies sometimes, um, I think what you'll find is there'll be an interesting correlation, if, if somebody was interested in doing a study, I think there'll be an interesting correlation in the break clauses that companies have on their rental agreements on property mm-hmm. and how open they are to remote working. True. You know, if I don't have to renew my lease on a building, I'm going to be much more open to remote working because it's going to be cheaper for me. Okay. Um, so any last observations that we, before we finish this one? Um, no, I think it's, uh, there's the, the big trigger. I mean, we've seen, um, here, for example, uh, the Irish government considering legislation in relation to, to remote working. Um, what, what became immediately apparent and was glossed over, uh, whenever it had to go remote, was actually that European legislation is is really poorly defined uh, to allow this. So um, fundamentally, if you're going to have someone uh, operating in a different jurisdiction for any period of time, the company has to have an entity of some sort set up there that's taxable. Um, that makes perfect sense. It gets people to set up branch offices and so on. I think, for me, what it, when when we see at a European-wide level that they properly embrace remote working and, and establish legislation that's common across all of the, the states within the European Union uh, that allow for some, whether it be a unified taxation, I, I wouldn't have exactly all the details of what needs to happen, yeah. but actually properly allows that sort of flexibility and mobility. Um, I, I suspect that's going to have to come sooner rather than later. Um, that's that's when I, I think we'll finally have have got there and realized the benefits of it. And I think very quickly the technology will emerge that will support some of those brainstorming things and, and increasingly the use of sort of augmented reality or virtual reality, virtual reality. to allow those kind of things to happen. Um, funny, I was I was saying to Alan a, a couple of weeks ago, we did play with some of that actually in, in the innovation center in the bank. Um, so there were a couple of early stage systems out there that allowed it. They were a little bit clunky, but I think they're, you know, as as VR and AR technology improves, we're going to see more and more of that. I wish we had more time to just, that was really good insight from you and it opened a new dimension for me as well. No, thanks. So, <laughs> so we'll wrap up here. Thank you for talking to us today. Thanks very much. I thank you for listening. The music is Impulse by Ben Prunty from his album Chromatic T-Rex and used with his permission. <laughs>